Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined again by Dr. Vibeka Watessen, and we're going to talk again about violence and crime from an evolutionary perspective. You can watch our two previous interviews on my channel. I'm leaving links to them in the description box of this one. So, Dr. Watessen, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back and for a third time. Thank you so much. Yeah, and for a third time because actually there are still things to talk <laughs> when <laughs> to talk about uh, violence, uh, human violence from an evolutionary perspective. I, I mean, there's a couple of things that we haven't touched on much, I guess, uh, like, for example, uh, if you take too much into account uh, uh, basically comparing humans to other animal species and if you take uh, evidence from uh, animal models when trying to study criminology basically and we're also getting a little bit more into things like paternal filicide, maternal filicide and also a little bit more on abortion because last time we were having a great conversation on that topic which is also relevant for these sorts of issues i guess we're going to get into that but uh, yeah let's start with other animals then so uh, is that something that you also consider in your research or in your work i mean do you look much into studies about violence in non-human animals and uh, which try to compare them to humans or not? I, I, I did as a student. Uh, as yeah. a student I would read uh, lots of studies pertaining to that, whether it was um, infanticide, war, yeah. intimate partner violence. Uh, I would read animal studies where uh, they would also have the phenomena um, and 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 when you when you do find a given phenomena like war, uh, infanticide, um, or intimate partner violence in other species than humans, it undermines the argument that when humans perform this behaviour, it's just a cultural construction, and so. And, and also, you can uh, you can identify through uh, animal studies, cross species studies. You can identify principles for the evolution of um, of the phenomena. Uh, and to give uh, one example, um, we're introducing a new character in this third episode, <laughs> and that's my new puppy, uh, who I got in February. He was two months then, so now he is seven, going on eight months. And he's in the midst of puberty. Now, uh, my latest study that I'm performing is on uh, juvenile homicide offenders. Oh. Now, I'm not comparing my puppy to juvenile homicide offenders. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine so. <laughs> right now, he's, he's kind of gnawing at me, so it's, it's, it's tempting. But my point, long walk with me as always, but my point yeah. is um, that puberty is a very real biological phenomenon. It yep. isn't just culturally constructed. It isn't something Hollywood made 
to make James Dean sell genes back in the 1950s. Puberty is real, puberty exists, and it's a very specific, biologically speaking, it's a very specific time in the individual's life, and you also find that in cross-species. Mm-hmm. It's not just humans, it's not just my puppy, um, but you find it in a range of other species, this particular biological stage called puberty. And this, because it's a specific biological period, you also get, it generates a specific psychology that mm-hmm. generates very uh, specific behaviors. Yeah. And what you find is that even in say something so um, evolutionary distant from humans as rats even rats when they are in the puberty will engage in more risk behaviors in that period in life than any other period in their life they will consume more alcohol in the presence of age peers just like humans um, and so this isn't just something that humans do and this is a relevant argument when I am going to consider uh, juvenile homicide offenders and the specific biology and specific psychology that you get in puberty. So mm-hmm. rather than uh, assuming, when you find, when you find a phenomena mm-hmm. in cross-species like this, you can then start to consider and explore and argue for there being a specific specific function for puberty. Right now, as I'm fighting with my English bull terrier down here, it doesn't it it doesn't seem reasonable that evolution would have made this. But if you find a cross species, you have to actually see that there is going to be a function of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what my little puppy boy is doing right now is that he's testing who's the boss and what are the limits. Yeah. Also, he's driven by testosterone. So that's my very long answer um, mm-hmm. to do I use animal models? I don't read a lot of those studies currently. Once in a while, I'll come across uh, studies on how female hyenas kill the offspring of other females that are lower than them in the hierarchy, or yet another study showing that the female of a species um, will mate after a male has killed her offspring. And, um, but I'm very careful with using that type of studies when I am writing about human child homicide. But I will say that both in my sample and in samples of, from other countries, is that you will find human females who will stay in a relationship and have children with the man who killed their offspring. Mm-hmm. So you can use animal models, but it was more something that I did as part of my studies um, rather than something that I uh, introduced the reader to in, in my articles. Um, it's, it, as we've spoken a lot about, evolutionary psychology is controversial. To use it on child homicide then is also controversial. Um, but there is no doubt that these things have evolutionary, deep evolutionary roots. Um, uh, but uh, even though you don't use yourself too much evidence coming from cross-species studies, I guess, in your own work, 
how do you think we should go about comparing humans to other animals? Because, of course, to a certain extent, we should do it because there's biological continuity. But uh, I guess that on the other hand, we should also be careful because there are tons of other species we could compare humans to. And then, I mean, perhaps uh, some of them are sufficiently different that it doesn't make much sense to compare humans to them. And then uh, also the closest species to us. I mean, uh, there are at least uh, two of them chimpanzees and bonobos that seem to be uh, very different from one another in terms of how they in terms of their sociality let's say and how they deploy violence how they establish relationships with one another and all of that and that's what leads us to um, discussions surrounding precisely the evolutionary basis of human violence because there are people that focus a lot on chimpanzees and then other people bring bonobos to the table and say okay you should be a little bit more careful because we have two uh, equally close species we should compare ourselves to and they are not exactly the same so what do you think about all that well i think um when i, I think animal studies should uh, be part of uh, um methodology classes, mm -hmm. research methods, uh, but also then uh, uh, on, on, on how to use it. Um, and, and also to illustrate the deep evolutionary roots of certain phenomena uh, that therefore cannot be written off as, as merely cultural constructs like uh, that on group the group averages between girls and boys with regards to how they play and the toys they play with that you can find that in other species as well that that have uh, not been subjected to uh, commercial uh, uh, cultures um, so I, I, I think we should be teaching these things and I think students should be allowed to explore these um, but a part of it is also to um, identify um, general principles, rules of thumb, when these conditions, then this can evolve. And uh, that's much easier to then use animal studies than, than human studies to make that argument, to find these general principles. Like one of the models that I do use is um, uh, Robert Trivers' uh, parental investment theory. Mm -hmm. um, and he goes through several different species to find the rules of thumbs. Now, um, I'm happy you brought up the chimpanzees, bonobo dichotomy, let's examples, say. because they are very often thrown out. Uh, you can't say that uh, these violent tendencies in humans are a product of evolution because look at the bonobos. Well, yes, let's. Let's look at the bonobos. Their levels of violence uh, are outstanding compared to human levels of violence. They are more violent than us. It isn't that every single conflict they have is resolved with sex or, mm -hmm. or sexualized behavior, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. They are actually more violent than us. Their levels of violence is higher than, uh, than, than the human species. So they aren't this 
people who haven't read the studies on bonobos, they will often throw out that bonobos are an example of that humans have the potential to live in peace. The best example of humans having a potential to live in peace are humans. Um, and what one does as an evolutionary psychology is, well, hopefully on undergraduate studies, one is introduced to and one does read animal studies. Um, but then from that point, uh, do as Robert Trivers and identify, well, what kind of pressures has the human species been under in their environment of evolutionary adaptation? And what is it that's formed us? Uh, I was in a discussion with an, uh, a biologist uh, at the University of Oslo a few years back, and he was quite boldly saying that uh, one can't use, uh, one can't look at other animals to understand um, human infanticide, child homicide, because no other species has child homicide in the in the manner that humans have. Now, first of all, I'm not confident that he was as familiar with the characteristics of child homicide, certainly not to the extent as I am seeing as I, I uh, research it and whenever I lecture on it, I always ask the audience, what do they think is a typical child homicide in Norway? And they always miss, they always miss, they always think that it's uh, extensive violence that turns lethal, but it actually isn't. In Norway, the most typical child homicide is a suicidal father. And that has very different characteristics from these uh, lethal beatings. Um, and the only reason I could identify that was that because I used an evolutionary approach and I did ask the question, what is, what's so specific about human parental psychology? How will human parental psychology have evolved? Um, so I disagree with this biologist. Um, so when you use animal models, you can't just say, chimpanzees are like this, so humans will be like this. You can't say bonobos are like this, so humans will be like this. You can't say uh, pubescent rats are like this, so humans will be like this. But you certainly should explore, is there anything cross species here? And evolutionary psychology is a project on, on uh, you know, carving to the core of human nature on what are the specifics uh, of selection pressure on our species, on our psychology, and how will it manifest? Mm -hmm. Uh, and when it comes to how human violence differs from the violence that we see in other close species, again, like chimpanzees and bonobos, do you agree with Richard Wrangham when he distinguishes between reactive violence and proactive violence? And he says that the evidence points toward humans having evolved to be more proactively violent than other closely related species, but less reactively violent. I have nothing but utmost respect for him. He's an incredible researcher and um, he's an He's an absolute role model in, 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 in being educated in and being able to use different scholarly subjects and scientific fields. And his writing is so eloquent and his arguments are so convincing. 
Um, but in my research, which is mainly domestic homicides, and now I'm also researching juvenile uh, homicide offenders, proactive and, and uh, reactive, I, I don't use those categories. Uh, I'm interested in reproductive conflicts and, uh, and reproductive crises and what psychological mechanisms get triggered in those situations and how how a better understanding can uh, improve our ability to prevent the triggering activation of these psycholo psychological mechanisms and if they are triggered how do we buffer um so i'm coming at it from a very different perspective than his um but he's uh, i would i would recommend all your viewers to to read his work uh, demonic males start with that and then his latest book where he uh, explores this even further the domestication of humans very convincing argument I, I know that he's provoked some researchers because he's downplaying female choice he does discuss female choice in his latest book but he doesn't really think that has been as uh, as, as uh, influential on, on the domestication as more uh, getting rid of the bad males. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, by, by the way, uh, for the audience, I have an interview with Dr. Rangam from early 2019 on the show. So whoever is interested in that, you can check that interview out as well. So, uh, but I, I mean, uh, sticking to your point of view and the place you come from, uh, you still, uh, and talking about crime, um, do, do, do you know, I mean, looking at uh, how crimes occur and what motivates them and all of that, uh, because I was thinking about the reactive slash proactive distinction here, uh, of course, this is a, a very broad question and perhaps it's not a very fair question, but just to introduce the topic, uh, do we know how much of it is just something that occurs in the moment and is not really planned versus uh, crime that is actually planned? And I'm talking about violent crime, I'm not talking about robbery or something like that. I, I'm talking actually about beating someone up or... Uh, killing them so uh, how, how much how much of it is just something that happens in the moment because i mean uh, people get too emotional or they have drunk too much or something like that versus something that they plan um well a, a lot of the violence and a lot of homicides historically and uh, um cross-culturally has been a reproductive conflicts that have a, a sudden spur between two young males. Mm -hmm. um, that's characteristic of the non-domestic homicides. Non-domestic homicides are typically two young males in a dispute over something that can seem quite minor to anyone on the outside but to the to the two parties it's it's about it's about honor and it's about respect and it's mm -hmm. about status and resources uh, which has an evolutionary function uh, than to 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 want to solve it in a dramatic manner um, 
but the domestic homicides, um, they are more planned. And certainly the ones that are extended suicides are more planned. They are more often planned uh, that the individual is more in a reproductive crisis than in a reproductive conflict as such. And in that crisis is trying to find solutions and without the help of the surroundings uh, is left alone with very dark ideas and thoughts of that perhaps a suicide is a solution and due to other feelings that have had an evolutionary function um, they extend that suicide to include um, those they care for like their children uh, these are more often planned um, and uh, they, they can be planned for months or weeks or days. And that's why, that's why I believe and a, a highly motivating factor for me in my work is the potential to, to prevent the psychological mechanisms being triggered. But if they tri are triggered, how the village can buffer that triggering so as to prevent these uh, extended suicides, uh, homicide suicides, but also just suicides as well because most suicides you, you are not extended to include other victims um but these are these are often planned domestic homicides of course the non-domestic homicides can also be planned those that are in association with a criminal lifestyle may often be planned um but the most typical homicide in human history is uh, two males in a, in a sudden dispute. You mentioned alcohol. Um, it can lower impulse control. Mm -hmm. It can make some people more violent than what they'd be otherwise. But when it comes to domestic homicides, um, I've, I, I, I lecture people who, who uh, you know, the police who investigate or also have been given of, of the past couple of decades a role in preventing domestic homicides. Um, they are very concerned with what, what about the role of alcohol and, uh, and, and drugs. And I say that it looks to me from reading all of these cases, as I have, um, it doesn't seem as if the person is drunk and due to being drunk commits the homicide as much as if you're going to kill someone you love, you might have to have Dutch courage, which is a silly expression for for you know, getting up the nerve by drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it, it, the non-domestic homicides can be influenced by alcohol, yes. Uh, bars closing at the same time too early at night, you know, if bars in one area closing at one o'clock as they, they have been in Norway, uh, just became a cesspool of potential violence and conflict. Whereas if you uh, extend opening hours, there will be a trickle of people going home and you don't have the masses coming out at once and then conflicts exploding. And they aren't planned. These uh, and, and there the violence can by accident turn lethal. Well, that, that's very interesting. I never thought about that before. So if you leave bars open till later, then less crime tends to occur. Is that it? less of these violent uh, violent conflicts yeah because people will be trickling going home some people will be going home at one some at two some at three um but if everyone is let out at one um like people like me will go home before 12 
but <laughs> younger people and young males will will be wide awake and not ready to go home at one o'clock. Mm -hmm. um, so in there were streets in Norway, the quite narrow streets with uh, with lots of places that would then close all at once. Everyone was out in the street at one o'clock, not ready to end the evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, here in Portugal, uh, right now it's it's not much later than one o'clock. It's two o'clock, so it's more or less the the same time. But but yeah, you mentioned something there that when you first mentioned alcohol, I was about to ask you. But yeah, the, then it seems that sometimes when people commit these types of domestic crimes, they might sometimes use alcohol to facilitate it. Is that it? I, I mean, because they, they, they've already planned it, they've already planned it and then they drink to make it easier for them to go ahead with it. I know I would. If I was going to kill someone I loved, I'd, I, it's, um, you know, popular culture can give the impression that um, homicide is something that is done easily. Um, yep. It's not. It's not something that's done easily. Uh, no. I, I mean, and I guess that one very good a piece of uh, data to support that is that uh, even though we have those types of crimes, there's still very, very, very few people actually going ahead with it. I mean, actually committing those types of crimes, right? Because, yeah. Uh, because it's <laughs> very hard. Unless, and, and le unless I guess you're a psychopath, but that, that's just like less than 1% of the population or something, right? A personality or a disorder can make you more vulnerable to perform violence, yeah, um, uh, by different um, trajectories, such as, for instance, less empathy, yeah. but also a greater sense of entitlement. Uh, and, and, they're, and they're also more impulsive. Right. Yeah. Ma many of them, at least. And uh, and uh, and uh, a, a less uh, of an ability to control emotions, which is then touching upon this whole: is it proactive, reactive thing, the impulsivity, mm. and but but also the sense of sense of entitlement and lack of empathy, also. Mm -hmm. And tell tell us a little bit more about that work you mentioned that you're doing on uh, juvenile violence and. Crime. So, because uh, I was, uh, when you mentioned puberty, for example, the first thing that came to mind was, of course, hormones, testosterone in males particularly. But another thing that I thought about is, so uh, our prefrontal cortices take up to around, at least as far as we know, 25 years of age to fully develop and the prefrontal cortex is very important in terms of inhibi inhibiting behavior and self-control, impulse control and all of that. So couldn't it be the case that that also plays a role? Because usually as men grow older, they have, they tend to have more self-control. Right. Mm. And prefrontal cortex is, is a part of that, which, uh, which also uh, you listed things accurately, but, but just adding also the ability to see consequences, long-term consequences for oneself and, and others. Um, a 
a teenager has a very short time span with regards to the future. Telling a teenager, oh, but think about your future, they live much more in the presence than, uh, than uh, old people like I do. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that absolutely is a part of it. But there's, uh, it's, it's yes, the prefrontal cortex and yes, hormones. Um, I mean, uh, there's this quote I was, uh, I was um, when, uh, when, when I was reading your, your questions and you were listing in your email that you were going to ask me about animal models. Yeah. And yes, I am working on juvenile homicide offenders right now. And it just came to mind the idea of animal models. This, um, it was in um, The Guardian I read a couple of years ago, this fantastic quote which summarizes puberty cross species. It's about wombats, an Australian animal. As babies, they're clingy, they're adorable, they're with mum 24 hours a day, they're in a soft, snuggly sleeping bag all the time, listening to a heartbeat, Lind told the Canberra Times. When they start to mature and hit puberty, they just hate everybody and everything. Um, they go from running between your legs and cute as a button to being absolute little, can I swear, little shits. They nip you, they wreck, they bite. I won't look after wombats because you kiss goodbye to your flooring and everything. They just destroy everything. And as we've been talking, my little boy has been destroying everything and is currently now attacking my trousers. Um, now, um, there's, there's so much going on, so much uh, biology creating a psychology that means that when a juvenile homicide offender has done the most extreme action any human can take, regardless of age, is in the courts. And the courts are laws, court procedures, everything is constructed for adults and what the law calls the rational man. In puberty, no animal, human, non-human, they're not rational. My little boy right now is not being rational and human teenagers are not rational either so they're actually an incredibly um, vulnerable time in their lives where what i see in the in the in the uh, you know societal debates in norway and i also see in the courts and in media is that they're horrified that a child can commit homicide but actually they are so vulnerable with uh, with regards to the brain's development with regards to the hormones and the significance that the presence and their social presence has for them that i i i disagree with holding teenagers human teenagers to the standards of the rational man. And in courts, of course, they are meeting forensic psychiatrists who do uh, a forensic evaluation of them, a jury, uh, judges that are all like, they are middle class, upper middle class, white, and have lived um, very different lives from these teenagers, uh, both, in, uh, both in Norway and as, as in the States, one, one's, one sees that these were children who should have been taken better care of, uh, and yeah. we didn't. Um, so they are, they are highly vulnerable, and there's like this shock that a child, a child could commit homicide. Well, yes, certainly. 
consider how extreme their biology is and then consider how extreme some of their lives are. Yeah, and I would imagine that also when it comes to um, human adolescent males, I mean, there's that combination of uh, less self-control that, that probably derives a lot from higher levels of testosterone combined with the fact that the prefrontal cortex, uh, cortex is not yet fully developed. And also, I mean, because of the risk-taking behaviors, uh, there's also something uh, else that adds to the picture here when it, um, when it comes to creating sort of an explosive recipe for being even more violent that is uh, I mean, it's also easier for them to uh, have less control when it comes to alcohol intake and drug intake and all of that, right? Yeah, again, I'm not really seeing uh, drugs and alcohol as, as um, the, um, the triggering, eliciting of the homicide. Again, I'm not seeing mm -hmm. that. Norwegian material, what I'm seeing is uh, reproductive conflicts and reproductive crises and that the, the social setting, the, the life there, the extreme life conditions that these uh, teenagers are in. Um, so far, the only thing that surprised me in this sample actually has been the number of uh, females. Um, but again, the, the, the lives of these the, people... The number of females who also commit this type of crime, is that it? Yeah, uh, female yeah. juvenile homicide offenders. The, um, there were more than I thought there'd be. Um, there is still an overrepresentation of males, but both females and males, it isn't... It, it isn't they got drunk and then they killed someone. They are in, uh, they have lived lives with um, many of them abuse and neglect, mm -hmm. um, and they are reacting to that abuse and neglect, or um, they are in a social setting where adults just don't seem to understand the significance that your social life and social status has as a teenager. Um, again, I repeat, there's there's a function to having this biology. There's a function to the psychology. There's a function to having the type of behaviors that you get. And there's a, there's a reason for why your social life is so important as a teenager. There are studies showing that being excluded and bullied by age peers is experienced as worse for a teenager than being subjected to domestic abuse and neglect. And so I think uh, it's, it's starting to trickle in also in Norwegian courts, it's starting to trickle in the fact that, hey, their biology is different from ours and hey, maybe their psychology is different from ours. Um, but there's still a lack of appreciation of that, hey, their social lives are different from ours. But it makes evolutionary sense. Uh, the function of uh, adolescence and having puberty is, is, um, is, is finding your position in your tribe. And when that position is being threatened or you don't have legal ways to achieve it, 
you get a reproductive conflict or crisis. Um, so some of your viewers will be thinking, I'm really downplaying drugs and alcohol here. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't see the evidence. Uh, and, uh, I mean, on that point, just to be clear, I perhaps when I mentioned drugs and alcohol, I was maybe not not referring exactly to uh, homicide, but just lifestyle, uh, violent, violent, violent behavior in general. Like, I mean, just the usual stuff of, for example, being at a party and drinking too much and get, getting into a fight or something like that, something more... Uh, in the moment and more impulsive, let's say, and that does not usually lead to someone dying. So, yeah, certainly, and uh, even more, even more severe with regards to that. Uh, uh, letting teenagers, young people, party without having adult chaperones, then yeah, there's an excessive use of alcohol, an excessive use of mm -hmm. drugs. Like I said, even rats who are in puberty will drink excessively when there are age peers there yeah. than there are adults there or younger there or there's a mix you know doing different type of uh, experiments it's when when you have a gang of teenage rats they drink excessively and so you'll get that with humans but another thing uh, mm -hmm. which is very troubling is then uh, uh, also the um, the occurrence of um, uh, rape yeah 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 I was missing that yeah that's true that's true. Which uh, I consider a violent and sexualized crime. Um, the whole, um, the victim being intoxicated and therefore not in a position to avoid this rape and being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you mentioned there are also females. And I was wondering, and you also mentioned some of the let's say, environmental slash contextual risk factors behind this type of crime. Um, are these risk factors similar to both males and females, or do you find some differences there? Um, well, predictably, both a male and a female needs to be cared for, mm -hmm. whether it's by parents or uh, the village. Yeah. So both female and males are reacting to not being cared for, but uh, in probably both. But I certainly remember the first interview that we did, I mentioned Anne Campbell. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the late Anne Campbell, a uh, brilliant evolutionary psychologist who uh, wrote on uh, female violence and female crime. Mm -hmm. And in, in particular, then her article Staying Alive from, I believe, 1999. But the article call, is called Staying Alive. And the massive selection pressure that's been on females to stay alive. Uh, due to their, uh, their compulsory physiological role as primary caregivers by being pregnant, pregnant uh, you know, gestating for nine months and then breastfeeding for, in hunter-gatherer societies, up to four years. And there's then selection pressure on them to stay alive to an extent that uh, hasn't been on men. So women in general are uh, exposing themselves uh, to a lesser extent to to physically dangerous uh, situations and initiating a homicide is of course <laughs> a 
rather dangerous because the victim might be successful in in protecting itself and so which, which is why the number of females uh, was a surprise it isn't now there are not that many cases i'm going to wait with telling you how many until i've published but there are not that many cases but there were you know a few more female uh, but that just shows how extreme their life circumstances are um, because it will take more for a female to go to that step so when a female does go to that step that's a reflection of how caregivers and the village have really let this female child down and not protected her against these extreme circumstances that then uh, then uh, push her to this very desperate uh, solution because no one is helping her to find another solution because when it when it's a matter of juveniles teenagers i do believe it's caregivers and and the village who has a greater responsibility than the child itself because we know from animal studies and human studies, we know um, that uh, their biology and therefore their psychology and therefore their behavior is different from, from an adult's. Uh, we have a great responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I've just recently actually had on the show or released an interview with Dr. Frederick Totes from the Open University in the UK, and we talked about sexual serial killing. Of course, that's not the same as what we're talking about here, but just to mention that, um, I, I mean, I don't think that there's th there should be anyone out there among these people, either uh, sexual serial killers or people who just uh, kill one person once. It's just a one-shot thing, let's say, who, who haven't had horrible lives growing up. I mean, I don't see any examples of people who have uh, like very good, uh, a very good uh, childhood and adolescence growing up and committing that sort, those sorts of uh, crimes. Uh, if they do, there will be a certain biology there um, that will create it. Like there are people, there are, there are cases I can't remember his name. I think I believe it was an American case of a guy who had led an ordinary life and then suddenly got uh, violent fantasies. I believe he killed his ex-wife and then several other people and then got shot. And then they did an autopsy and found a brain tumor. Uh, now this isn't just an urban legend. It's in one of the psychology textbooks where I've uh, been teaching in, uh, in, uh, in the biology of personality. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I have in my sample of juvenile homicide offenders a case um, where I actually I was a forensic expert uh, uh, on, on homicide in the court case. Um, the courts were so horrified by this teenage boy who had uh, committed a double homicide. But as, um, as one didn't learn through media, and you couldn't really read from the verdicts. But what I learned in that case was that he'd actually been suicidal uh, for a few years, uh, been untreated, undiagnosed, untreated, and therefore not given any help for depression and suicidal uh, uh, behaviors. And was then in this, as I keep repeating, uh, an, uh, to him as a teenage boy, 
the reproductive uh, crises and reproductive conflict that he was with uh, with his uh, his first victim was so extreme that he couldn't handle it on his own. Um, and there's no reason to believe there was anything wrong with his family life or anything like that. But um, the conflict and crises that he found himself in as a teenage boy with a teenage biology, he just couldn't handle it on his own. Um, so you do have, but but he wasn't like you say, like a serial killer. No, that is that is that is very some that that's something uh, very different. Uh, yeah, and it's it's extremely no to being a serial killer. Yeah, and it's extremely rare. I mean, if homicide is rare, this is it even is. rarer. I mean. Um, some in your audience will probably be watching true crime shows. Um, and if you do that, if you watch true crime shows, you might get the impression that, you know, you, you can't get on a bus without there being a, a serial killer there. But it is actually quite extreme. And to, to studies to have a big enough sample, you need like large populations, like you need to get samples from the States, from India, um, of course, you only hear about serial killers in the States or Germany, but they exist all over the place. But you need huge, uh, a huge population to find that one person who has that sort of biology that gives that sort of psychology, that gives that sort of behavioral tendencies, because it isn't, it is not a species typical uh, uh, behavior, serial mm -hmm. thing. It's no. not. Uh, no, I, I have to tell you, when I was an adolescent, I loved watching uh, crime shows, but now, I, I mean, I can't stand it. it it's just too, it, it, it's just too much and too silly. I mean, first of all, if you watch them, you get the idea that if you just walk out, walk out on the street, you might get killed any time, <laughs> that the crime rate is just, I don't know, 80% or something like that. Like and, villages, uh, villages in the English countryside. <laughs> um, yeah. And also you get a very skewed idea of the resources that the police have. Uh, that's the other thing, I, the other point I was going to make. I mean, it's so, so frustrating to watch those shows nowadays because it's like they mobilize the entire police force <laughs> to try to, get, to catch uh, a, a guy who committed homicide or something like that. Th that's already very uh, unrealistic, but then they have all sorts of uh, 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 completely ridiculous advanced kinds of technology oh, yeah. and they waste all of those resources trying yes. to catch one single I mean come on it's exactly. like it's like Dr. House on steroids or whatever I mean most police districts would be happy to get a whiteboard uh, or functioning internet um, and also you get the impression that uh, the police are continuously using eccentric and sexy profilers yeah. um, they are not they are not continuously using sexy and eccentric profilers with troubled romantic lives um, on occasion I will uh, be a consultant to the police here in Norway when they have cases um, where where the ones investigating the homicide are just 
Well, they're struggling. They're struggling with that. Would a mother do this? Why would a mother do this? Um, can we claim that the mother would actually do something like this? Um, looking back on the cases I've been involved with, there's a, there's a clear overrepresentation of uh, me being called in as a consultant in these cases when when there's it's maternally perpetrated filicide. Um, I don't have as many examples of when it's a paternally, when a man has committed the homicide or the severe violence uh, that they're investigating. And I fear that, I fear that the police might just think that, oh, well, men are violent, you know, no problem imagining that he's done this. And then when confronted with a mother doing it, but having a culturally constructed idea of that women are not violent when women absolutely are when it comes to their children. Like I said, and, and Campbell's uh, argument was the whole staying alive, not initiating um, the violence that could um, endanger the perpetrator, the female perpetrator. This is then no longer an issue, is it, when the, when the victim is a child, uh, an adult woman will be successful compared to the victim in one of those situations. So I'm, I'm just worried, and I, I write a bit on this in my work, on how women have been pathologized, that a woman must be she, the, pathological if she's perpetrated filicide, but not necessarily. It's all depending. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an assumption that needs further qualification, because yeah. there is a systematic difference uh, on, on, on those perpetrators who do have some sort of psychopathology versus those that don't. Mm -hmm. And by the way, since we're talking about the media, one thing that really bothers me, and even more so than the crime shows, because I mean, the shows are fiction, whatever. I mean, they might influence uh, the culture to some extent, but I, I don't worry too much about that. But what I worry more about is the ways uh, people on the news many times go and look for a crime committed in an isolated place that was really horrifying and then the way they portray the crime on television and even more than that because again it gives people the wrong uh, impression that there's lots of crime going around there everywhere but also, I mean, it is really unfortunate that sometimes what that leads to is that uh, the suspect is already sort of being considered uh, the actual perpetrator in public mm -hmm. before he or she was properly judged in court yep. and gone through trial because I, I think that's really bad because if the person yep. is the suspect is actually not the person who committed the crime uh, yeah. her or his reputation is already tarnished right? yes absolutely we've just had a case in uh, Norway um, where the the guy sentenced for and it's a really, really horrific crime. Two little girls were brutally killed and raped. Yeah. And um, the police went after two young men. And after 20 years, one of them is now acquitted. Yeah. And he's lived his life as just being 
like referred to a prototype, the most horrible human being on earth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, he wasn't. But that, that's his life then completely ruined. I mean, he's yeah. he's yeah. out now. He's in his forties, but oh. And uh, he, the, the 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 media and the police were too quick to conclude that he was the one. And although I don't like true crime shows, I don't. And um, I'm in media doing interviews on on homicide about once a month since 2008 or something like that. Um, but I won't do any interviews with true crime because I don't think that these shows. And they they too easily can uh, make entertainment out of something so horrific, mm-hmm. and I I don't like that. I don't think people should uh, seek that as entertainment. But also a true crime show. Now they were helpful towards his acquittal in Norway. This this uh, last case I'm talking about. But you don't know at the outstart of a true crime show, documentary, podcast, what have you, if they will be able to pinpoint truth any better than the police were back in the day and they might also in a true crime podcast then acquit someone or 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 place guilt on someone where that might not be correct either mm-hmm. so the news can do it try uh, true podcasts can do it and i think i think the audience needs to be considerably more critical but also media needs to be more critical and um so far, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just comforted by knowing that the police are taking it more and more uh, seriously. Um, but I'm, I'm also waiting for media to take it equally as serious and these it, true crime, both those producing it and those being entertained by it, um, to also take it more seriously. Um, it's, it's hard to know. The truth in these... Uh, yeah, but, but, but I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, but I guess that most of the responsibility should be on the media and not so much on the audience. I'm, I'm going to explain why. It, because, I mean, first of all, the media is already portraying a suspect as a perpetrator. I, I mean, many times that happens. I, they, they're not very subtle in, in the way they expose information. Uh, and um, also, I mean, so people get exposed to uh, that, that piece of news of someone who committed murder or, or supposedly committed murder or someone who raped another person, for example. And then, I mean, what are people going to do? They see that on the news, they comment on it with other people, and then people just have to, like, condemn the person who is presented as a suspect. Because, I mean, I don't know if you ever tried this, but I now and then get into discussions with people when something like that happens. And if I just try to say something like, wait a minute, it's just a suspect, we're not sure. 
I'm already a rape apologist and homicide apologist. I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? So I do, I do. And, and, I, and I guess that to some extent, I understand that reaction from people because we're dealing with something that is very serious and the television and the news is presenting, is talking about a specific person as being the person who is basically associated with that crime and i mean the first instinct is just to condemn that kind of uh, that person because that's what you do in human society right you're absolutely right and so yes in other words i uh, you're absolutely i i absolutely agree with you yeah first and foremost it is those who actually make produce these uh, those shows documentaries podcasts but um I'm still going to claim that you have some consumer responsibility uh, to be critical, uh, that you can choose to, to, to watch the shows that are more humble and less sensationalistic. Um, and, and, um, and, and the problem is that these shows are being made because the audience uncritically and with glee morbid glee are, are consuming and watching these um but i still want to hold consumers responsible i do i want to hold them uh, responsible and i want them to be more like you and say hang on wait a minute uh, my best friend and i uh with that that case from norway where he was just recently acquitted uh, my best friend she won't necessarily come to any of my lectures and she won't necessarily read any of the interviews I do. She hasn't watched any of these YouTube interviews I've done with you, and she won't watch the, this third one. And so I can out her here. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Don't get me <laughs> into legal issues. No, no, no. Um, no, but, but, but she'll watch true, uh, true crime podcasts, also knowing that her best friend doesn't like them and is qualified in arguing don't, well, for why you shouldn't watch them. She will watch them. And so she was convinced that this guy who recently was acquitted, that he was actually innocent. And all I had to say to her was, hey, you have now seen the defense, but you don't know what the police did have of evidence against him. Um, so this should be tried in courts and it shouldn't be tried in media where you only get his defense. To which when he was acquitted, she had then interpreted me as saying that he was guilty. I hadn't said, I hadn't said anything. I, what I'd say was, I don't know. So I've been in your situation where it's like, hang on, wait, we don't really know. We're being presented by either the court's very strong argument for only listing why he's done it and then media listing why he hasn't done it. And we don't know. We have to be more humble and critical as consumers. But yeah, no, she took that as evidence for that. Uh, I believed he was guilty. But the thing is, I no idea. I used to be a prison researcher before I was a homicide researcher. I did prison research and um, I was at the prison uh, quite a bit at the prison where where he was serving his t uh, indeterminate sentence, but never met him because he was never up for meeting a researcher. Um, so these are real lives that either, you know, that are being portrayed as mm -hmm. one or the other. Um, and also there are the... Um, I think also I should bring into the, the uh, our, our conversation here um, how this is then for the people who are bereaved and left behind. Yeah. 
um, how it is for them to watch. Uh, they they don't they aren't necessarily watching these true crime podcasts and shows and uh, and, and, and another th about that another thing that I sometimes uh, find really uh, bad that people do on the media is that they try and sometimes even force a little bit interviews with for example the family and people yeah. like that which i think i, I mean come on that, that's yeah. too much right yeah it is it is it is too much uh and um yeah one 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 has to consider them also as a both those who are initiating these projects, producing, making these projects, but but also the the, the I'm I'm still arguing for a critical consumer mm -hmm. that if they before you watch this show, this podcast, whatever, um, have have the bereaved been involved in any way in making it? Have they had any kind of reaction to it? Um, because. The, the end of my argument uh, earlier was that they're not necessarily watching these shows or listening to these podcasts, but they are watching their surroundings with morbid glee, discussing and watching and being entertained by 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 the rape and and murder of of their loved ones. Yeah. So, uh, and, yeah. And, by, and by the way, since we are on this topic, uh, also something. Uh, and now, to be fair, I'm also granting you the point that, uh, to some extent, that we we should also. Uh, uh, I mean, the consumers should also hold some responsibility. Uh, I mean, I mean, for, for example, one thing that really bothers me is, uh, for example, here in Portugal, uh, uh, when someone commits a crime, for example, there's an homicide in a small village, they usually go there, the reporters, and they ask the neighbors, for example, and usually, most of the time, what most neighbors say is something along the lines of, oh, he, he was such a nice person. I mean, they don't usually say anything bad about the suspect. And, and, and then the way people react to that, the, the, the viewers and all of that, they usually say, oh, they are just hypocrites, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. Why? Why are they hypocrites? I mean, can't you imagine? Okay, let's suppose that that person actually committed the crime. Okay, let's suppose that's true. Start with that. But even if that's true, how hard is it for you to imagine that someone can deal with different people in different ways, right? And have different sorts of... I mean, someone who commits a crime is not, is not killing the hundred people around them. They're just killing one person. So if they were... Uh, I, I mean, usually polite to 99% of people around them, that's just to be expected. I mean, they're not lying. The, the other people are not lying. They're just saying that it, when it comes to the kind of relationship they had with them, it, exactly. was, it was just they, fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, this, this is something I've also been uh, reacting to for, for, for years. I mean, when I first starting, uh, started um, researching uh, domestic homicides uh, back in 2008, uh, it would be very little uh, media coverage um, and there the, was like 
um, media was very, very careful with these cases. And, and in, in Norway, uh, most domestic homicides are extended suicides or mm -hmm. part of uh, or performed in a psychotic episode. And so media were very careful. Uh, but uh, like over the past, say then, past 10 years, it's it's the, the whole media circus comes to this tiny village yeah. in, in some unknown fjord where there's been a domestic <laughs> homicide yeah. and um, and immediately start interviewing neighbors why why what can what can they tell uh, they will in Norway also say surprise surprise um, oh I'd never thought that of Bob well no it's, it's just like you said why would you think that of Bob he was your neighbor he wasn't your husband who you were going through a divorce with right now yeah so his conflict and crises wasn't surrounding you. You're Bob's neighbor. You're not his ex-wife. Um, so what I've, what I've been criticizing media for doing this um, is that the best, the best you can learn from an interview with neighbors is the whole, yeah, no, domestic homicides can actually happen in absolutely every single neighborhood. Yeah. Domestic homicides don't just happen in big cities, like capital cities, like in Norway, Oslo. Um, domestic homicides will happen wherever there's a man or a woman going through a reproductive uh, crisis or conflict. That's where you'll get it. And, and that can happen in any neighborhood, even in Norway. Actually, in particular in Norway, in, in other countries, like in the States, in the UK, in South Africa, you will have neighborhoods with higher rates of crime. And with the higher rates of crime, you'll have higher rates of uh, homicides. But a domestic homicide, uh, that can happen in any social class. And it can therefore happen in any neighborhood and therefore can happen anywhere in Norway. And that's the best you can learn from an interview with a neighbor. But it's the whole, it's the media circus making entertainment out of uh, out of it, and again, consumer responsibility seems to evaporate in uh, in this um, morbid morbid interest. Now, now, before we move on to another topic, let me just say what we're talking about here is very serious. But someone should do a comedy sketch about some of these things because I, I mean. You go to it's the village. You go to the village and you interview the baker, the dentist, the priest, yeah. the undertaker. I mean, what do they have to do with that? Man? Come on, really? Yeah, I think it's much better to just call uh, call call an expert on homicide and and ask them about the questions like, are the particular neighborhoods, you know. Yeah. Can't neighbors detect? Um, but yeah, no, they're continuously going for these neighbors, and and uh, makes me worried about what is the next step because media just over the years has become uh, in in Norway has become more and more um, when they're not not treating it with the same serious tone that they used to. It's becoming more sensationalist and and mm -hmm. like covering it for the sake of covering it rather than actually having an important message to to the public with their coverage 
um, which is the precise reason why I do interviews. When when a homicide has occurred, I will do an interview um, for the sake of educating uh, the population in Norway as a whole, but also in that village of. Yeah. Because in, in, in the absence of, of uh, professionals, you know, scientific-based information, people have their own ideas. Yeah. And they might be very wrong. Mm -hmm. And by the way, going back to one of the topics that we explored in our first interview when we talked, for example, about the work done by Dr. Martin Daly, uh, and I'm asking you about this again because actually uh, it is an issue that we are going through right now, particularly in the most developed countries and with the, co with the current cost of living crisis, for example, and inflation and all of that, I guess it's probably even worse. To what extent, uh, I mean, how important is the role of economic inequality uh, how much of a role does it play in this type of crimes? Um, well, one has known for, for decades that when it comes to the general levels of crime, which then give an associated increased then also level of uh, non-domestic homicides, we know that it isn't, it isn't just... Um, rich versus poor. It's the individual's experience of relative depravity, relative uh, um, poverty. Um, yep. So now we also have, you know, it's, uh, there's more information available and, and, and uh, from social media, from news, um, that uh, that's influencing the individual's perception of well, how poor am I relative to others? What are my chances of obtaining resources and the status and etc. Mm -hmm. uh, to achieve this with legal measures versus non-legal measures uh, that that will influence the young people? But we we also know like the young male syndrome that Martin Daly wrote on together with his late wife uh, uh, Margot Margo Wilson. Um, and there's another thing we also know that it's, it's, it's both the, it's, it's the relative experience and that it's the experience more than the actual, uh, um, level of poverty versus middle class versus, uh, those 1% rich. Um, so it's, it's not just actual rates, it's also the perception of where media and social media will be influencing the individual. But we also know that it's not necessarily the individual's um, actual or experienced relative poverty here and now, as much as what signals was the individual picking up as a child. <laughs> so right. children growing up in poverty is going to be a bigger problem than young men in poverty. Um, so we know that when it comes to domestic homicides, um, well, we know that uh, we know that, um, for instance, when it comes to intimate partner homicide, child homicide, familicide. Familicide is when you both commit the child homicide and kill a current or former partner, losing your ability to provide for your family has a massive influence on the male psychology. 
you know, having the ability to provide, but then losing that ability uh, can make a man uh, uh, perform this extended suicide. Um, so when Norway shut down during the pandemic, there were a lot of people, including my neighbours, who were claiming, uh, well, now there'll be a lot of homicides uh, because the country shut down. Because they had an idea of domestic violence domestic violence causing the homicide. Mm -hmm. uh, and they also had an idea of the more time you spend with your family, you're more likely to hit them. Now, this is unqualified. It's, it's, very, it's very dark that mere time spent with family will make you both hit them and kill them. That's pretty dark yeah. and it isn't, it isn't supported by any evolutionary perspective of human nature at all. Um, so I said that it's actually not gonna be a problem with the country closing down. Um, because with the country closing down, it removed the social and financial ability women had to leave relationships they didn't want to be in. And that prevented intimate partner homicide. Now, I'm, I'm analysing Norway. This might have had completely different effects in other countries, but my knowledge of the phenomenon and of Norwegian society made me say, no, you won't have an increase in child homicides or and certainly not domestic, uh, no, I'm sorry, intimate partner homicides. You won't. The problem will be, the problem will be when the country opens up. When the country opens up, women will again be taking out divorce and leaving relationships they don't want to be in. And all the financial help, because Norway was brilliant with regards to helping people out financially, people who had businesses that were, uh, that were feeling a detriment to the, the country being closed down. It was the government decided that the country should close down. So it was government that was causing a lack of income for them. And so the government took the responsibility they actually had and financially helped these businesses, which means that men were able to support their families and keep the families yeah. during lockdown. Yeah. But when society opened up again, there was no more financial help and women were again able to leave. And that's when I said that now we have to do, now we have to do the job of being there for each other uh, yeah. and help families going through these financial crises and, and uh, breakups. Um, so that's how I analyze the Norwegian situation. Now, this might be different in other countries, because you, you also saw in other countries, you saw, I know there was an increase in violence, whereas in Norway, there was actually a decrease in women getting in touch with the police. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be, my analysis of Norway was that men who use violence to control the partners already had the control of the partners of the lockdown in itself. So the women were always at home they could control them at home and it didn't trigger uh, men to control these women by violence and also um, intimate partner homicide was also prevented. Mm -hmm. uh, by, by the way, uh, does, um, ju just to try to understand a little bit better from an evolutionary perspective the mechanisms that are operating here. So when uh, men who is married, uh, for example, loses income, his income goes down, or uh, worse than that, loses his job, becomes unemployed. Uh, I mean, the fact that uh, sometimes, not, not uh, every time, of course, but sometimes some of them become violence, 
violent toward their uh, partners, their, their spouses. Does that have anything to do with uh, their self-perceived mate value going down? Or Apart from that, they're not consciously perceiving it. But yes, we talked about this last time. Um, words like strategy and perception, how they're used by non-evolutionary uh, scholars and the general public is that yes, they are perceiving it, but not consciously perceiving it, but it sure. is triggering psychological mechanisms of uh, a need to uh, up the control of, uh, of uh, the partners, yeah. Um, because it's it's a fact their mate value is is declining but also and i write about this because it's not just about their mate value it's about a genuine evolved motivation for men to provide they 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 genuinely want to provide for their dear ones um and, and in that particular case perhaps their self-esteem also goes down more generally not just their self-perceived mate value yeah but those are closer associated than uh, the yeah yeah sure i, I mean I, I guess that there are many factors that would play into self-esteem and that would be yeah. one of them but i'm arguing for um something that I'm hoping will elicit more empathy and sympathy uh, in the general public, because it's the general public who has to uh, buffer for the triggering of this. And that is men genuinely want to provide for the families and the, the pain and darkness associated with not being able to provide for your family. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we need to be more sympathetic to, I think we need to be more aware of it. And I think we need to be more sympathetic to this being very real feelings, mm -hmm. um, because it can also not necessarily allow, you know, lead to, to extended uh, uh, suicides, but, but, but the singular suicide. In, uh, in Norway, a population is just over 5 million and we have about 600 suicides a year. And, uh, more uh, than by, by the way, is it right that Norway and perhaps uh, another country in Scandinavia are among the countries in the world where suicide rates are the highest along, along Japan, I guess? Mm, as far as I know, uh, the suicide mm. rates in Norway are, um, they, they, don't, they don't stick out in any... Uh, oh, oh, okay, okay, so perhaps I, I read these uh, is somewhere that was not uh, very, I mean, perhaps it was an untrustworthy source, I guess. But, but the Finns... I know that in the Scandinavian and Nordic countries that the Finnish have higher rates of suicide and uh, one doesn't know why and they mm -hmm. also have higher rates of homicide and we don't know why. Of course that's changed over the past um, say five five years or so with, uh, with the uh, crime rates and along with the crime rates uh, the associated uh, homicide rates between uh, young men in, uh, in certain parts of Sweden. Um, but uh, but prior to that, Finland had uh, both more 
homicides, suicides, and homicide suicides in the other Nordic countries, and one one didn't know why. Um, there were studies looking at the the quality of the drinking water. There were studies uh, looking at ridiculous studies looking at the level of of um, reading newspapers, which is just a classic case of uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's then a classic case of association correlation, not cause effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, Norway's uh, not particular in uh, in with regards to suicide rates. I I, I don't believe so. No, no. But um, but my point is, there's uh, there's uh, there's another side to male male domestic violence that I don't think has been given enough attention, consideration, and. Uh, humane approach yeah. and that is the real crisis that a man can uh, can uh, can experience um, so uh, these days i'm currently writing a text on uh, homicide suicide from evolutionary perspectives uh, where i'm where i'm bringing to the foreground uh, the concept of reproductive crises uh, even though uh, Daly and Wilson were, were were spot on with the with the hypothesis of reproductive uh, conflict, yeah. but uh, but uh, uh, I think from an evolutionary perspective we need to give also more attention to the crises, which then give it's a different type of psychology being triggered, and therefore you will have uh, associated you will have uh, uh, different character characteristic traits of the perpetrator. Uh, victims, circumstances, methods, and and in in turn, uh, ultimately, you'll also then have to have different approaches to uh, prevention and buffering. Mm-hmm. And also, and since we're talking about economic inequality here, more on the side of uh, economics slash politics, I guess that many times people also underestimate how hard it is to uh, be poor and to yes. uh, and to live poverty i mean because because the 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 problems usually pile on on top of each other i, I mean you you are poor you can't pay rent you can't pay for food uh, perhaps you might to try to cope with things with things perhaps you might develop some nasty addictions that are really really hard to treat uh, and i mean even even without that it's it's not easy at all to live poverty right and then evolution has created that very special biology and psychology of young male which daly and wilson uh, introduce in their young male syndrome uh, where they explain that when you are in those circumstances and then you get presented with okay so legal measures of getting out of poverty are not available to you mm-hmm. and then someone introduces the illegal what young man will say no to yeah that's true and then for you know white middle-class male who's had a great life to say i still think he should have taken the moral high road yeah <laughs> cool but you're not there and you've never been there and again this is this doesn't mean that uh, you and i th- think that it's just, you know, 
it, it's 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 a brilliant option for young men. You know, do something illegal instead. Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> wouldn't recommend it. There's it, a difference between uh, explaining it and and accepting it. Mm-hmm. And so, as a homicide researcher, when I am when I am you know lecturing and doing interviews and being a consultant and i'm i'm giving a, a humane spin on something that has often been written off as men are evil and violent and they're all horrible uh, mm-hmm. and instead i'm coming with a very different take on it and maybe if your viewers haven't seen any of the two previous interviews you might be quite shocked by my attitude here but um I think one has tried writing men off as uh, violent and horrible for centuries and not been very successful. So maybe maybe try a different approach, uh, which has which has theoret- scientific theory and empirical evidence to to support uh, that um, um, there are there, there can be different psychological mechanisms being triggered. Uh, causing these behaviors and with a humane response you might not have it triggered and if it's triggered you can uh, you can buffer that mm-hmm. that activation uh, and the nordic countries the nordic countries have had a policy on many different areas that have ultimately led to lower crime rates and associated lower homicide rates than other countries uh, and has therefore been a very successful natural experiment in how to prevent these things much better than other countries that have been given more attention, such as, uh, for instance, the States or, or, or the UK, um, uh, which have had more more of a punitive and uh, withholding on welfare. And it hasn't worked. Um, and now, of course, you have the Ghana natural experiment of Sweden, where there are so many uh, young men who have gri- uh, who have grown up in relative poverty, p- absolutely perceive that they have that, do not perceive that they have a legal measure to, uh, you know, the, the, the level of status that they want because they are young men and they are therefore driven and ambitious. It's just that becoming a doctor or a lawyer just doesn't seem realistic to them. So they're using these illegal illegal measures, which is then crime and associated with that kind of lifestyle is is homicide. And that's what we're seeing in Sweden. Um, So having a global perspective and seeing how different societies can create crime levels. And when we do that, how do we respond? it's very telling of uh, of human nature. Yeah, and I mean, as you mentioned before, of course, we are not here to recommend any no. of the, any of that. No. But, but but at the same time, legal measures. Yeah, well, but but at the same time, I have to say, if the state and the collective does not provide these people with good enough uh, resources and opportunities to leave poverty, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? I mean, if you want to keep on living, I mean, if you don't want, that's another issue, but if you want to keep on living, I mean, you have to earn money in some way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and less, unless you want to uh, like steal or something like, but that, that's, that's still crime, so... You have you have to 
you have to sustain yourself. Right? Yeah. And also young males want to go beyond just sustaining themselves. Young men are driven, but like I uh, like I just said, not all not all young men, not all 14-year-old boys see becoming a doctor or a lawyer accessible to them. Uh, and then then they get introduced to where well, you can do this and that and it's illegal, but you'll get you know, fast money and status. Mm-hmm. So young young boys are extremely vulnerable um, to to living in a society where they're not perceiving having legal options. Um, so we have to create societies where they perceive legal options, and and not, not just a false perception, but that it's actually it's actually true. I mean that's why so many African Americans um, were, uh, you know, above and beyond. I mean, yes, they had Obama who was representing them, but they were also talking when they were saying he represents us. They were also considering how he represents the, you know, a real life example of what a young African-American can achieve, Mm -hmm. that they need these role models. Um, So role models, but also that the structure is there. Like one of the things that uh, makes social mobility you know, to, if, if, if you're born into poverty, to get out of poverty. Uh, one of the things that creates a social mobility in uh, Norway is that all education is uh, more or less free. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's a very symbolic student fee uh, to go to uh, Norwegian universities and colleges. Uh, so it's accessible for everyone. And also you have um, government run uh, student loan um which is just common like everyone has it kind of thing um and these things have um worked towards that you know maybe your parents haven't gone to university or college if you're an immigrant family your parents have maybe not gone to university or college but but you can and you're presented in the norwegian society that this is a this is a realistic opportunity for you Mm-hmm. Uh, to make a career, etc. Um, but um, the problem with social minorities is that um, it isn't just a perception; it's, it's it's very real. Like when when you live in a family and you see your parents struggling financially, and you see that it's hard for for people like you to get a place to live, etc. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of alienation towards society as well. Um, so there's a there's a there's a there's a lot of levels to work on if uh, if you want to uh, uh, get crime rates down and uh, one can only hope that Sweden finally realizes that they have to go about this very differently to present the young men in their society with with a perception uh, of realistic options because mm-hmm. that's not happening right now and it's also then therefore the situation of any country on earth that has a social minority, the young males there are very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And and also, I mean, among those options and opportunities that people should have, uh, we should also include, uh, I, I mean, this is more of my socialist uh, 
side uh, talking, but uh, I mean, I guess it's also important to have uh, strong workers' rights. And I know that many, yes. many people on the right don't like this concept at all, but I'm going to use it anyway. Having actual living wages. I mean, because you don't need to be a doctor or someone with any kind uh, with a, an equivalent career or profession. I, I mean, people should be able to work any job and be able to pay at le at the very least their basic uh, bills. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Nordic yeah. countries then have been a splendid natural experiment showing showing that success. In the Nordic countries, um, the unions have been strong. Um, so that this has happened here. Um, but then again, you will always, always, always have the problem of the young male syndrome and how ambitious young young boys and men can be. Mm -hmm. And um, it's all f fair enough for you and I to say, you know, just having basic needs met. No, not everyone has to be a doctor and a lawyer. But young men are different from you and I. Young men are so ambitious that if they can uh, have a, a, a job where, you know, you can pay all your bills, it's fine kind of thing. You can mm -hmm. have one holiday each other year. You should be happy with that. A young man isn't. That's the young male syndrome, wanting more and uh, being willing to take risks. And again, like I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but it makes them very vulnerable when then mm. someone introduces them to an alternative. And the alternative is always illegal. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, just before we move on to abortion, uh, because at a certain point, <laughs> I, I mean, we have to talk about abortion because this is, uh, I mean, the states are just pissing me off <laughs> with no, recent it's developments. And, it's awful. It's awful. Uh, but, but yeah, just before that, I wanted to comment on something that you said there at a certain point. You mentioned uh, people getting uh, annoyed or upset by uh, you and other people studying these issues from an evolutionary perspective, for example. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it, it's not just that... Uh, you are just trying to understand, explain these kinds of behaviors, but we need those explanations to prevent these kinds of behaviors, right? I mean, and I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even trying to play some sort of tribalistic war here and say that evolutionary psychology is the only game in town. I mean, it might come from a developmental perspective. You might come from. Uh, the perspective of sociology, it doesn't matter. I mean, and, you need, and we need all of those perspectives. Yes, but, yes, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, but uh, either, either it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter the perspective you come from. You're still trying to understand the behavior. And again, we need that understanding to prevent as, yes. as best as we can those yes. behaviors from occurring. Right. Yeah, we need an accurate... Uh, valid, realistic understanding of human nature. 
um, so that we don't fall into the traps of saying, well, if a woman has killed her child, she must be mentally ill. Uh, or saying, well, no wonder a man killed his child. I mean, he, men are violent. I mean, we've had these very odd ideas of human nature, such as the more time you spend with a child, the more likely you are to hit it and kill it. No, um, not in a species so dependent on spending all your time with a child. Yeah, so you have to have a realistic understanding and... Um, well, like in, in, in my years of study, I mean, I've got undergraduate studies in, I mean, I, psychology, criminology, biology. I have a master's both in criminology and in psychology, two separate masters, and a PhD then in evolutionary psychology. So, I mean, I've, I've been through all the theories. Uh, and it's not that, you know, the people who, who believe in a social learning model of human behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they will be, they can take offense of that I'm an evolutionary psychologist, which is just weird and odd. Uh, but they will take offense. And then they will ask me, well, don't you think any behavior is socially learned? And I'll say, yes, no, of course it is. Of course it is. But the ability to socially learn behavior is only there if it had an evolutionary function. Mm-hmm. So to understand why some behaviors you will socially learn much quicker than others, um, we have to bring in a little bit of an evolutionary understanding of, uh, to get a realistic understanding of human nature. Why, why, why do we have social learning at all? And why is it that some behaviors more than others uh, can, can be, um, you know, is malleable, can be formed by it? And why is it no matter how much social learning you throw at a phenomenon, you're not getting rid of it? Yeah. Uh, um, and also like sociology that looks at, you know, sociology has been uh, critical to understanding on a population level why certain groups are more vulnerable than others. But again, they are saying something about human nature here. If you say that it's not, you know, if you say it is poverty, you're saying something about human nature when poor humans will. Yeah, you basically you're saying... Uh, yeah, you're but, also saying something. Yeah, basically you're saying when humans are exposed to these conditions... X happens, right? And so you're saying something about human nature, and then, then it's lost on me why you wouldn't want to educate yourself on how nature evolves. Because mm-hmm. we're all saying something about human nature. It's just that some of us are more explicit than others and more educated than others on 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 what nature is and how nature evolves. For instance, by reading the works of Robert Trivers or Hamilton, and and then uh, ex- explicitly using that as a theoretical guide to do our research. Like, uh, there is absolutely research, homicide research out there uh, that disaggregates between uh, homicides and homicide suicides, and then looks for, is there anything, what's typical of the one and the other? You know, what, 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 make them, what makes them different and what makes them similar? but they haven't got a theoretical foundation for making that disaggregation. Whereas with an evolutionary approach, which I'm part of developing theoretically as, along with the empirical evidence for it, is that there is scientific theoretical reason to expect there to be differences. Differences mm-hmm. in the psychological mechanism triggering these two different uh, types of homicide. And also, therefore, also the characteristic uh, traits of perpetrators, victims, circumstances will necessarily uh, both be predictable. If I'm 
if the hypothesis is correct, it will be predictable um, uh, and, and, and systematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know why people so strong-headedly are denying the theoretical and empirical development in their subjects because they have this emotional response to the idea of using an evolutionary approach um, mm-hmm. because we all want the same thing yeah. we want to understand human nature so that we can improve our conditions yeah and also i mean that's more of the intellectual dispute here but also something that doesn't really help at all and it's probably even worse than those disputes is just people uh, saying, oh, that man or that woman did that because he is bad or he's evil. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but the only thing that tells me is that you yourself live in a society with norms against that kind of behavior. And, uh, and, uh, and look, more power to you, that's excellent, but I'm not learning anything about the person who committed that type of crime because that's just moralizing. So I'm not learning anything. The, the person is bad, the person is evil. Yeah, and what does that mean? <laughs> because they're defined as that because they performed that specific action. But yeah, you know, you know absolutely no more on how to prevent, how to buffer. No. You nope. You still don't know. So now what? So yeah, no, they're just describing uh, by referring to like historically current norms because there are societies where, you know, killing an unfaithful partner was accepted. Um, Societies where not wanting to provide for a stepchild was accepted. So so now, so you've described the norms of your current culture but you haven't said something about human nature because in, uh, in, in larger parts of our history, we were performing these behaviors without much moral judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, I love norms. I love norms. Hey, I love I don't want to live in anarchy. I do uh, but, not want to live in anarchy. As, yeah, a, as a female, I do not want to live in anarchy. And, I want we, and with all the caveats we mentioned earlier when we were talking about uh, publicly condemning people who, are not, who have not been proven to be guilty, with all those caveats in mind, yeah, if someone has been proven guilty, shame that bastard, okay, fine. If, <laughs> if those norms work, fine. But again, I'm not, I'm not learning anything new about uh, or anything more about criminal behavior by just hearing people calling someone evil or bad. So, yeah. Okay, so getting into abortion then. Uh, oh my God. So, uh, I, I mean, I, w- I wanted to ask you about. Um, because there, there have been some studies, and I guess that most of them are from the 90s. I don't know if there are newer studies or replications out there that linked um, access to abortion to lower uh, criminality. And, and, and I guess that the link there was sure, that, yeah. was that um, the link was mostly if 
women, the mothers who live in dire conditions, who live in poverty, etc., uh, have access to abortion, then there would be fewer uh, kids, uh, mostly males, I guess, that would be growing up in those conditions that would lead them to criminal behavior. I, I think the, this was mostly the link. I mean, is that true or is that something that's been debunked? It's theoretically sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, theoretically sound because it's it, it's absolutely true there are other things that can uh, that can of course help uh, besides from abortion like for instance um, I mean these numbers will uh, have been produced in for instance the states you know and mm -hmm. they've got other issues there like not necessarily helping single mothers to the extent that one does in for instance the Nordic countries the financial help uh, the lack of social stigma, etc., that you have in the Nordic countries versus in, in certain uh, states of America. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of factors playing in. But, but yeah, women, women know what they're doing when they're having abortions. I, I think that's, that's, that's a claim that bears repeating, so I will. Women know what they're doing when they're having an abortion they know what they're doing they know that they won't be able to care for that child and, and, and i mean we really have to stress because this is really a point that many people on the right bring to the table women do not uh, go for abortions lightly i mean that's not a decision that they make lightly no no, no. one does that i mean that, that's just, that, that's just a myth that some yeah. people on the right uh, keep bringing to the table uh, to, to, to suggest that, oh, if abortion is legal, then everyone will be using abortion as a contraceptive <laughs> measure. I mean, that's, abs that's absurd. From an that's evolutionary absurd. perspective, that makes yeah. absolutely no sense no at all. Sense. It, it is absurd. Um, and one can make a joke about what horrible women they have in their lives, you know, I'd hate to meet your mom uh, when someone says that, if that's their idea of, uh, of uh, female psychology. But, but yeah, academically, one can also say that there's absolutely no sound theoretical, no empirical basis for, for that claim. Um, there's research showing, because uh, on the right wing, because it is often right wing um, mm -hmm. arguments against this. Yeah. Uh, not that the not that the liberals want to are wanting to force abortion on women. Oh, okay. <laughs> Come on, that's another difference yeah. between those sides in politics. But yeah. but um, the right wing they they're also the ones that are, and we spoke about this last. Um, they are also the ones who are withholding more on uh, on 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 helping women. Mm -hmm. who are single mothers. The, the quicker to judge single mothers and not wanting to help them, you know, with, with the, the, the state um, 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 state-provided uh, child welfare. Um, so they're wanting to like force women into not being good mothers and also having a society that doesn't help that mother. Yeah. So the, the, they, they are creating a horrid situation on both accounts, which, which undermines 
the credibility of them saying we have to think of the children because obviously you're not you're wanting it to live but then you want it to live in poverty with a mother who can't care for it this is not an argument for just getting rid of the abortion and then having like these 1950s ideas uh, of, uh, of of uh, the good mother and like you know forcing women to be good mothers after a 1950s model <laughs> not arguing for that either um I just want to repeat, women know what they're doing when they when they decide to have an abortion, that that's the best solution. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one should trust women more uh, and not uh, some some countries. Norway has had it under certain circumstances, under certain circumstances before getting the abortion. The woman has to meet a, a, a board of people who have to listen to her plead and reasoning and then they make the final decision. I think that's absolutely grotesque. Uh, I think that is absolutely grotesque. A woman knows what she's doing, but I am, jokes aside, I'm not gonna joke about the mums of these people, but but they do have a rather disturbing idea of women as, I don't know, feeble-minded, uh, you know, that women are backward and they can't make this decision on their own and we have to make the decision for them and that if uh, if you let women decide they'll just be you know gleefully murderous yeah. and it's just completely unrecognizable you know as a as a as a woman as a human being as a homicide researcher as an evolutionary psychologist i don't know what they're talking about yeah and also i mean since they come from a conservative point of view and many times people make just silly statements or, or claims about how uh, life in traditional societies is just to uh, reinforce the position that oh we should live traditionally and all of that I, I mean if you look into anthropology particularly um, you also get to learn that actually, uh, I mean, the, the, again, going back to norms, just because you live in a, a society with Judeo-Christian, with the Judeo-Christian morality that condemns yeah, abortion, I mean, that's not exactly historically and traditionally the same in human societies, because even in societies where you don't have sort of uh, medical drugs to perform uh, for abortion to occur i mean you have access to other things like i don't know chemicals coming from plants or whatever to induce abortion and uh, i mean we if women do not have uh, good enough conditions to have a baby and to take care of it and rear it uh, and they do not have any other alternative traditionally they resort to abortion one way or the other that's basically what i'm saying it's not something that liberal people in the west suddenly invented no and also um traditional societies and norms changing etc is that um when you don't have the possibility to abort whether by modern medicine or other sorts of 
medicine or not to be able to abort by any means. Uh, what you have is you have uh, increased rates of neonaticide. That's when the child gets born within the first 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And historically, um, that's been the largest uh, 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 child homicide category, neonaticide has been the largest, uh, performed them by women who can't take care of this child for reasons such as, you know, she doesn't have resources or she'll be ostracized from the, her family. Yeah. Uh, the pregnancy occurred outside a relationship or with an unwilling partner, uh, unwilling with regards to investing. Um, again, she knows what she's doing. Um, and so the states has had the highest rates of neonaticide in modern time, whereas other countries uh, who have been more progressive and liberal uh, have seen a greater decrease in these numbers. And again, the Nordic countries are excelling. And I have an article published back in 2012 saying how we, uh, it appears that we currently have an absence of neonaticide in Norway. And we had, uh, even to the extent, the, the, the appearance of an absence of neonaticide currently in modern day Norway, um, due to abortion, sex edge, education, um, preventive measures, the, the um, uh, social stigma uh, being uh, gotten rid of, blah, 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 with the Nordic countries, um, a natural experiment showing that with all of these opportunities that women now have to control if, when, with whom, etc., they become mothers, neonaticide declines. And, and you see that in the whole Western, westernized world, but you're not seeing it as clearly in the States because they keep doing whatever they can to prevent women from sex education, preventive measures, and abortion. Because you also see now uh, with these um, different states struggling with are women still allowed to have an abortion or not, as the federal right was removed, uh, now it's on state level. Um, the same states that are trying to prevent women from having abortions are also trying to prevent sex education, also trying to prevent access to uh, birth control. Um, yeah, it's the same states. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, oh, it's absolutely awful. It's absolutely awful. And I, I don't know why American researchers haven't pointed out the obvious, you know, child homicide researchers that if we do this, we might also have an increase. I mean, yeah, you'll have an increase with women having illegal, doing illegal measures and convictions of these women, and you'll have medical complications and the women will die and children might die. But no one has said yet. So I, I wrote an opinion piece back in Norway, which is in, in English on my, my, uh, my blog, um, that you might actually in these uh, states also see an increase in neonaticide. Women who haven't been able to prevent getting pregnant, haven't been able to prevent the birth through abortion, and so then have the child, uh, give birth to the child, but, but are still in that desperate situation. Like you said, the situation hasn't changed. It's just the legal measures have. And so now they're committing neonaticide. And uh, so you'll have an increase of that. And with that, an increase of imprisonment, harsh imprisonment in, in the states. The, the states are harsh against women perpetrating mm -hmm. neonaticide. Um, many other countries, it started in the UK and other countries uh, followed up back in the 1800s yeah. on, on 
having a more lenient approach to women committing neonaticide, appreciating, having a humane perspective on appreciating the dire situation these often young women were not being able to take over the kids and therefore yeah. having it uh, uh, prescribed in the laws that these women should be punished uh, less severely. Um, whereas the states didn't do that. And yeah. some states then can go, they can go wild with uh, with uh, the prison sentence against these, these uh, poor women. And of course, there's going to be class differences in what yeah. women can go to a different state in what woman can obtain the safest illegal measures, etc. There's there's going to be uh, there's going to be class differences, mm -hmm. and within class, you also have some social minorities that are going to be more vulnerable than than the white majority. Yeah, and it's, it's just it's 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 a modern day horror show to watch. Yeah, uh, and by the way, this will probably be my last comment slash question for this interview because we've been going we've been going on for a while now. We always do this. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I don't uh, I, I don't mind at all. It's just that I'm a bit worried also about uh, taking too much of your time. But but anyway, um, also, and this is probably something that an evolutionary perspective might help us uh, get a better understanding of and being a little bit more empathetic, I guess, because, I mean, it, just imagine, and I'm not a woman, so I won't ever go through these sorts of issues, but, but still, I can put myself in a situation where I would want to do something with my body that I'm not allowed to do, and yeah, I can very easily imagine a situation like that. but. Just imagine how horrific it must be for a woman to not have the necessary conditions to have a child and getting pregnant and then around her nobody being willing to help her and that pregnant. I, I mean, that, that must be one of the worst things that could happen to you. I, I mean, for me personally, uh, it's very easy to imagine even someone having suicidal ideation because of that. I mean, it's it's awful. It's awful. It's it's why I uh, I use use the phrase uh, that uh, it's a modern day horror show, absolutely horror show. To to like I mean, you mention mention everything that is then important from an evolutionary perspective to have control over your body, to have control over when, who, if you get pregnant to, to, to have, if you have a child to, to have the possibility to be a good mother mm -hmm. and to not, not go through, not you are not the child going through you being a bad mother. Um, no, it's a it's a modern day horror show, and uh, it's uh, it's so so abundantly clear to the rest of us that this isn't really thought through. And the argument of, but I'm thinking about the child when you're trying to restrict women in this way is yeah. it's just it's it's not credible. It is that, not credible. I, I mean, it's even less credible. <laughs> I mean, George Carlin had uh, a stand up segment about this. I mean, the pro-life people, realistically speaking, only care about the life of the child until he or she 
comes out of the womb because after that i don't see many far right-wing people caring about child support and uh I, i mean even Oh my God, this is awful. But even in the States, there are people who don't want to, for children to have free lunches at school. So come on, you're not getting away with that kind of argument. That's not credible at all. You don't care about the child. You just care about the fetus. And someone probably will quote me on this. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Can I ask a question to you? Talking about abortion as we are, as frankly as we are, uh, and, and our attitude, etc., are you going to get a lot of like hate mail? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I guess I, I will probably get some hate comments on the video. That, that's more frequently the case. <laughs> I mean, I remember, and, and, and yeah, we have to wrap up the interview, but just to mention this briefly, uh, I had an interview back in 2021 with Francesca Minerva, who is one of the founders of the Journal of Controversial Ideas in Philosophy. And we were talking about, uh, back in 2012, she made the philosophical uh, moral philosophy argument for what she called post-birth abortion, which basically infanticide. I mean, making an argument for, I mean, at, at least to a certain point, if we look into the neuroscience and the cognitive science, supposedly the kid hasn't developed yet certain psychological capacities. And so if he would kill it, it, it wouldn't be that much. Of course, this is a very, very controversial argument, but, and Peter Singer also supports that kind of argument, but I, I mean, that's beside the point. I, I, I did that interview, I released the interview, and then I got a comment there of a, a guy, I, I guess it was a guy, but <laughs> basically condemn, condemning me to uh, burn in hell. So it was, yeah, very obviously a religious person at the very <laughs> least. In hell, and that hell is a place that burns. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I might, I might, I might get something like that in this interview. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, we're not there because what what I'm telling you is that if you remove the opportunity for abortion, what you'll get is an increase of those post birth, as in what, what we actually then call neonaticide, killing the newborn. So if you want to avoid that, uh, you should allow for abortions. And they have to be safe, legal, accessible. Accessible means that it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be, you know, if women aren't having abortions because they can't afford them, well, they're not going to be able to afford the child, are they? And so in Norway, um, it, it's the, the state healthcare system that, that pays for the abortion. So that's, that's a part of the picture. Um, so yeah, um, if you want to have an increase in neonaticide, by all means, remove women's ability to have uh, free, legal, safe abortions. Uh, but if you want to remove neonaticide, abortion, along with a list of other things, is, is what you need to... Uh, to uh, um, yeah. 
Yeah, also, I mean, just for potential commentators, please work a little bit more on your insults because I'm not a religious person. So just telling me to burn in hell, I mean, I'm all for it. So. <laughs> If one doesn't believe in an afterlife, the idea of burning in an imaginary one is not terrifying. But I, I, don't, I don't think we've had horrible comments. I haven't checked in a while, but I don't uh, think you and I have uh, had any horrible comments. But let's, let's see. Yeah. Okay. So, just quickly, would you like to would you like to tell people again where they can find you and your work on the internet? Oh, I always get terrified when you ask me this question. No, I don't want people to find me. <laughs> I, I mean, find you is basically social media and stuff no, like that. Don't, don't, don't find me. Um, I am on Twitter. I don't know if Twitter still is a thing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm also not sure what its name is right now, because supposedly it, it's X, but it's Twitter, but I mean, I don't know anymore. But I'm there as yeah. Biosocial, so biosocial, but without the C, it's an S, uh, which is also the name of my scholarly blog, which I'm never updating. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I mean, you'll find me on ResearchGate, I think is the safest place, because, uh, yeah, find me on on. Research at, at, at least there's no Elon Musk there. <laughs> See, number one, he's not there. Two, he's not there dancing. So you know, win-win so far. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of hate crime on ResearchGate. So yeah, I think find find me there. Find my publications there. Not all of them are openly accessible mm -hmm. of my publications. Um, but uh, when possible, I have open publications and the Neonaticide article is there, the one from 2012 on Neonaticide uh, yeah. and the Nordic countries being an, an experiment and what works and what doesn't uh, and its association with abortion um, and uh, the systematic differences between uh, those um, Uh, those child homicides with and without an association with perpetrator psychopathology you'll also find there and a list of other works that one might have to then uh, pay for getting access to but like where I discuss the more sympathetic sides of of the male psychology that yeah. is underpinning their homicides um, work describing how women aren't pathological Uh, but are following an adaptive logic when they perpetrate child homicide, including their neonaticide. Mm -hmm. So one can find find me on ResearchGate, I think is the safest place. But no, I always get on edge when you ask, where can people find you? I'm like, no, don't. I don't need to be found. Just... Well, let me just tell you that you're not the only one. Uh, in fact, I have several interviews where this is this was the most horrifying. Is it? I'm not, I'm, okay, so I'm not just weird and high strung. Um, uh, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Okay. Well, I so am high strung, but I'm not the only one who is. Yeah. Okay. So well, thank you thank so, you much, so much, much again for your time, and it's always lots of fun to talk to you. Always such a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me reach your audience. Uh, I'm 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 surprised and flattered that you have me on at all, let alone a certain time. And uh, thank you for your patience with my very pubescent little English bull terrier. Um, He's a lovely thing, but not when he's awake. Yeah. No, we made for a great companion. So. <laughs> There's always more blood, a greater body count, and a new character in a in a sequel. So I think we ticked the boxes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me, and take.
Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Pereira Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librant, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amal, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraúzo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntera, Dana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hallman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Panos Cortesos, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Jorge Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Holt Erickbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gressis, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, these are Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.